As we continue our way through the book of Acts, please turn now to Acts chapter 10, and we will look at the first 35 verses this morning. As we come to probably the third watershed event uh, in the book of Acts, the conversion of Cornelius. And this is huge, and the implications even uh, redound to God's glory today. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is also called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again and a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up, to, up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this, the vision that he had seen might mean, behold... The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him 
fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we do pray today that you would work deeply in our hearts, that you, by your Spirit, taking the word, the powerful word of the living God, that you would do heart surgery on us today in a spiritual sense, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, move our heart's affection toward Jesus and cause us to get out of ourselves and reach out to other people who live in darkness and to other people who are struggling in our current context. Lord, we pray that we would be lights in a dark world and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so as I mentioned earlier, we are now at the third and final watershed event in the book of Acts. These are huge happenings. A lot of spiritual power uh, has been demonstrated in the book of Acts. And anytime you see angels appearing and, and stuff like that popping all over the place, God is at work doing something significant. And so the first act that we have noticed that was a watershed event was Pentecost, as the Spirit spoke good news in the tongues of the Gentiles. Then the second watershed event was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, and God commissions him to the Gentiles. Thirdly, now, Cornelius, God gives the Gentiles his spirit. We will see that more next week. In the conversion of the Samaritan and the Ethiopian eunuch, God has given glimpses of his position to embrace those who are outsiders in his grace and enfold them into his own people. Now God's heart for the all the nations is displayed and is to be attested by Peter and the Jewish believers who accompanied him to Caesarea. Cornelius is introduced in, uh, first in his connection with the occupying forces of the powerful Roman Empire. 
He was a centurion, which meant he was a commander of at least 100 soldiers. He had been posted to Caesarea, located on the Mediterranean coastline north of Joppa. Caesarea was a cosmopolitan city. Uh, it was built by Herod the Great and named for Caesar Augustus. It was the provincial capital of Judea under the Roman governors, so a military presence in this city was not at all surprising. Um, the troops under Cornelius's command were part of the Italian cohort or regiment. Their affiliation uh, with the imperial capital that had subjugated Israel to the outrage of devout Jews, Rome was in Peter's day exactly what Nineveh had been in Jonah's day. And you'll remember that the prophet's reluctance to warn God's enemies of impending judgment lest they repented and the Lord relented. Cornelius was an alien in God's land and worse yet, a representative of the pagan power that oppressed God's people. Yet, he was the most untypical alien you could ever imagine. Cornelius was one of those God-fearers uh, the Bible speaks of in the New Testament in a number of places. He was devout. He feared God. His family followed his lead. God-fearing was a term applied to Gentiles who adhered to Judaism's faith in the one God, that is, they were monotheistic, and to the Ten Commandments, the moral law, but they balked at circumcision. They wouldn't go that far. And at the kosher dietary restrictions of the book of Leviticus chapter 11. Because God-fearers were uncircumcised and ate unclean food, observant Jews kept them at arm's length. While respecting their monotheistic faith and their moral uprightness. Cornelius's power showed itself in his prayers and in his gifts to the people. He was a, a charity giver in, in the strongest ways, which was unusual. Uh, he was generous to Israelites in particular, which is why he was well spoken of by all uh, the Jewish nation. Like the centurion at Capernaum for whom Jewish elders had interceded, Cornelius's longing for Israel's God motivated his concrete generosity toward Israel's people. But I want us to take a little bit closer look at Cornelius because there are things in this text that could be easily misunderstood. First of all, Cornelius honored God. Even if you don't know this background information, we can see and infer from the text that first Cornelius prayed to the one God of Israel, that he prayed to God regularly. Second, he obeyed the general moral law of God, though he did not obey the Old Testament ceremonial regulations. He was righteous, that is, he did what was right. He was kind to the poor. He gave generously to those who were in need. In sum, he both respected and prayed to God in general and lived a moral, commendable moral life in general. But he was by no means a Christian. Not at all. Having heard nothing yet about Jesus Christ, he was also not a Jew. Though from the Jews he had probably learned things about God 
that he accepted and responded to and honored. Rather, he was the classic, good, non-Christian who honored God in a general way and lived an exemplary, just, and generous life. Second, we notice from this text that God honors Cornelius. Two statements are very strong and even startling. First, in verse 4, your prayers and gifts to the poor has, have come up as a memorial offering before God. The Greek word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to burnt offering, which was not a sacrifice for sin, but rather an offering of gratitude to God. Second, in verse 35, Peter says, referring to Cornelius, God accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. That's a little scary, isn't it? If you know anything about what we believe, this means that Cornelius lived up, as it were, to the light that he had. That is, what he did know about God, he honored. All he knew that was God was great, that he was worthy of obedience and respect and even expressions of gratitude. So he gave it. And God, in turn, shows Cornelius a certain regard. The nature of this regard is extremely interesting, and we must adopt a very careful, nuanced, and balanced approach. Some read the word accept as meaning that people like Cornelius are saved and accepted in the full sense of being justified. But that not only contradicts the rest of the Bible, but even the rest of the book of Acts, as we will come to see. Uh, even the rest of the story, for if Cornelius is already saved, why does Peter need to come to him and preach the gospel to him? On the other hand, many Christians seem to regard all non-Christians as equally despicable. Here, however, we see God showing him some kind of regard and some kind of respect for a man who does not have enough spiritual knowledge to be saved, but who is honoring all the spiritual knowledge he does have. Therefore, Cornelius is, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 24, a seeker, as it were. But one who does not understand means a seeker after more knowledge of God. He's an inquirer. God has already begun to work in this man's heart. He's not yet saved, but God is at work. And that leads me to my third thing about Cornelius. He was not saved at this point. Despite all his goodness and all his desire for God, he did not have life that chapter 11, verse 18 will tell us, that only after hearing the gospel he was granted life. That is eternal life. Before he was a nice person, but not a new person. In order to get life, Cornelius needed two things. First, he had to repent. Obviously, if he scrupulously obeyed God's law, then he would have repented for sins often before. So what is the repentance that he was to uh, express now uh, and for the first time to be granted to him? Well, he repented not just of his sins, but listen carefully. He repented of his best deeds. He repented of working for his salvation. This is the biggest problem that good people have. 
moral people have. People who seem to want uh, to know about God seem to be decent people, the kind of people you'd want for neighbors living next door, the kind of people you'd want for friends and to work for and to work with. But they never understood the fundamental principle that God not only rejects us because of our sins, but because of the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness and our own works, our best deeds. George Whitfield in his preaching always says that is the last idol of the heart to fall in the conversion of an individual is to not only see that his sins damn him, but the best thing about him damns him if he trusts in that to make himself right with God. As John Gerstner used to say, it's not so much your sins that separate you from God, but your damnable good works. You see no need for the cross. Jesus means nothing to you if you can save yourself. Jesus is not someone who you adore and love and fall at his feet and worship. And so that is the big problem for the good person. And it was Cornelius' problem as well. Second, not only did he have to repent of his good works for salvation, second, he had to believe in Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. Only then was he saved, only then were his sins forgiven, and only then did he receive the Holy Spirit. Some, some people might say that anyone ha who has this kind of heart goodness and desire for God is always a, quote, pre-Christian, someone who God is preparing and who inevitably will become a Christian. That's possible. But this passage does not say that. What it does say, however is that first, no matter how good and wonderful a person is, he or she cannot be forgiven and fully accepted without the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new birth, regeneration. We cannot expect people to be saved uh, without the preached word of Christ. If Cornelius needed to be saved, everybody needs to be saved. But it also teaches us that we must show a great respect for non-Christians who obviously are capable of a great deal of moral and spiritual wisdom. Theologians would say that we should realize that God gives a lot of common grace, that he gives a lot of moral sense and wisdom and virtue to people apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should recognize such people. God obviously prefers righteousness to Christians and sincerity to insincerity in everyone. But we should not, on the other hand, forget that we need special grace. We need saving grace. We need the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we are to become members of God's family, so this passage should never influence us to stop evangelizing the nations. But it should bring us to do so with a great deal of civility and respect and honor for those like Cornelius. Not every unbeliever you meet is your sworn enemy. Sometimes we're so defensive and sometimes we're so worked up about all of this that uh, we struggle. But here, an opportunity was given uh, by the Lord to demonstrate to us how people like Cornelius come to faith. Now, how does God in this passage begin to break down Peter's racial 
cultural prejudice. I'm going to touch a little bit on it today, a lot more next week, because I think it is such a hot-button issue and topic in our culture. And I never hear it addressed biblically, and I rarely hear it addressed from the standpoint of gospel. There's a lot of finger-pointing and a lot of name-calling and a lot of uh, su suspicion of motives, and there's a lot of, of, uh, of power moves, uh, a lot of demands... But you know as well as I do, that doesn't change a person's heart from the depths. The fact that God has to send multiple, strong, obviously supernatural signs to Peter in order to get him to even visit a Gentile shows how strong racial prejudices were and how wide was the chasm between Jew and Gentile. It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenanced such a divide, it affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 12. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism. They were God's favored people, favorite people. And they became filled with racial pride and hatred. That's what the whole book of, of Jonah's about, by the way. A lot of people have a lot of ideas about what Jonah's about, but you've got a racist prophet, bigoted, uh, prejudiced prophet, who, who doesn't want to go <laughs> to this wicked city and why does he not want to go? Because he doesn't want them to repent and, and get right with God. How hateful could one person be? And so they were filled with racial pride and hatred, and they despised the Gentiles and called them dogs and developed traditions that kept them at arm's length and apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. All familiar intercourse with Gentiles was utterly forbidden. The Jewish ceremonial laws of clean and unclean foods and garments and practices were God's visual aid to demonstrate that people were sinful, that they could not just casually or cavalierly come into God's presence, that he was a holy God, and that people needed to keep separate from sin and evil. In fact, the clean and unclean laws are really impossible to keep completely, which was also God's way of showing people that they could never cleanse themselves from the stain of their sin. But over the centuries, the clean and unclean laws were twisted into a way of works righteousness and as a way to keep separate from those people over there. Lines were drawn. People on this side of the line were the good and the righteous people. People on that side of the line were the evil and wicked and despicable people. As a result of all of this, God has to send three great hammer blows to even get Peter to go to Cornelius in Caesarea. First, the vision God sends is of a sheet containing a mixture of animals, many of which were unclean. Maybe written on the sheet was pork is the other white meat. I don't know, but, some, but the sheet was lower. 
I happen to believe that, by the way, because of where I'm from, as you know. Uh, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for pork, I don't think. But, the, but there was a mixture of animals, and many of them were unclean. And the laws of clean and unclean land, uh, animals are laid down clearly for us in Leviticus 11. Because the sheep contained all kinds of animals, the command to kill and eat was to contradict, in Peter's mind, the Old Testament ceremonial law. This would have deeply offended Peter's conscience, and it would have been disgusting to him in an emotional sense. He says so in verse 14. But three times God repeats, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The vision alone is insufficient to help Peter. He does not yet get it. Second, God the Spirit directly commands him to go with the men who are about to appear at his door. Third, he hears from the men that an angel had appeared to a Gentile centurion, Cornelius, directing him to summons Peter. Only these three things together were sufficient to even get Peter to go to the house of an unclean Gentile. God is saying in the vision, even the things that are defiled and unfit for my presence, I can make clean and fit for my presence. There is no being that I cannot make clean. The key word is make. Peter had assumed that some things just were inherently clean and other things just inherently unclean by the nature of their being. God is introducing a paradigm shift, a totally new concept. That salvation is not a matter of pedigree or even achievement, but is the result of the action of God. So nothing uh, inherently... Uh, Oh, excuse me, so nothing in or even of achievement but the action of God. So nothing in, is inherently and permanently unclean. The Gentiles who were ceremonially unclean were like the unclean animals in the sheet mixed in with clean animals who represented the Jews. When God cleanses someone from sin, they are equal to anyone else and should be all be in association together as one body. Peter says, Now I realize, verse 34, that God does not show favoritism. That means now I see this, that external criteria, such as appearance, race, nationality, class, gender, make not a whit of difference for whether I am loved and justified by God. Peter obviously knew that at one level, it's the gospel, but at another level, he had not applied it in his habitual attitude toward the Gentiles. The religion of good works will get, definitely give some people the right to feel superior to others, but the gospel of grace means that no saved person, hear me carefully, no saved person can ever feel superior to any other saved person because we're all saved by what? Grace alone. So when we look at verses 34 and 35, that this cannot mean that Cornelius and other good God-respecting people are saved apart from Christ. Indeed, Peter shows him that only through Christ will his sins 
be forgiven. No favoritism means this, that Cornelius' Gentile nationality was acceptable so that he did not have to become a Jew, not that his own righteousness was adequate so that he had no need to become a Christian. Let me repeat that. No favoritism means that Cornelius's Gentile nationality was acceptable so that he did not have to become a Jew, not that his own righteousness was adequate so that he had no need to become a Christian. For God is not indifferent to religions, but indifferent to nations. The presentation of the gospel that we will see next week gives is significant that in virtually the same as his gospel preaching to the Jews, he preaches the same way to these Gentiles. And so in conclusion this morning, we see the glory of the truth of the gospel here revealed. And next week, I want to focus our attention more on dealing with the sin of racism. And here's why. Because Peter, we know later on, was rebuked by another apostle. His name was Paul. It happens in Galatians 2, where Paul charges Peter, who had gotten a little weak need uh, in the face of the apostles at Jerusalem, James and the brothers, who were coming to check out the churches, and Peter realized that a lot of pressure was being applied to him to maintain that the Gentiles converted could not have full status as Christians unless they first became Orthodox Jews, that they had to become circumcised. That's what Acts 15 is all about. We'll get there. But Peter began to hedge, and he began to refuse to eat meals with the unclean Gentiles. And Paul says, Peter, you're not in step with the gospel. You are out of alignment with the gospel. What he's saying is, you, you don't get it. It has not trickled down into every dimension of your life. You might understand the gospel theologically, but you do not understand its therapeutic and relational reality. That once you're saved by grace, you recognize that you're the biggest sinner you know. And that you can't regard anyone as any more... If you don't see your own uncleanness, you've never been cleansed. And so that's what we see in this glorious passage before us today. That God has begun to open up the whole world for the power of the gospel. What does that mean to us? That means the most unclean person in every dimension that you know is a candidate for the grace of God in the gospel. God can and will save anyone his heart desires and intends to. And he will use you to accomplish that. I, I would ask you this question. In your prayer life, do you ever pray for unbelievers? Do you ever pray for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus? To share the God? Well, that's not my job, Pastor. That's your job. Biblically, that is totally backwards and wrong. My job is to equip you with the truth and the reality of the gospel so that you cannot help but gossip the gospel with other people. And so I would wonder if that's part of your lifestyle, part of your understanding. Because if it's not, I'm not sure the gospel has trickled down into all of your relationships. 
It affects the way we live as husband and wife. It affects the way we work. It affects the way we live out all of our relationships in this world. And so the, every problem we have, every obstacle we have, is because we do not yet get it like Peter didn't get it. We do not yet fully understand the gospel. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the power of God unto salvation means it, is, it has the power to deliver us from the power of the sin and the flesh and the world. And only the gospel has that power. Only the love of Christ expressed upon his death, burial, resurrection, his fulfilling all righteousness for us, is able to deliver us from wanting and loving sin more than we want and love Jesus. And so that's what we're beginning to see as this glorious book of Acts continues to move. Let's look to the Lord now as we pray. Father, I do pray today that your spirit would continue to minister to us the power of the gospel and that we would begin to see with new eyes, that we would get a new paradigm for the people we try to reach. Naturally, we like people who look like us and act like us and think like us and go and do the things we do. But we understand that once we understand the gospel, we see the whole humanity in a different way. And our hearts are moved to tell other beggars where the bread is. And Lord, we pray that you would help us understand that more deeply and act on it more consistently. Not for our glory, but for yours alone. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.